Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Positive Sports Report. I'm your host, Dana Smith. I'm a teacher and a coach at Carnegie Middle School, the middle school athletic director for San Juan Unified School District, and a certified trainer for Positive Coaching Alliance. In this episode, which is the first one available on YouTube, we have a discussion of our Coaching with Empathy workshop put on by Positive Coaching Alliance for our cross-country coaches. And we have an interview with Linda Flanagan, who wrote the book, Take Back the Game, how money and mania are ruining kids' sports and why it's important. So let's roll. Hi, my name is Shani Amanavan. I'm the cross country and track and field coach for Gold River Discovery Center K through eight. And uh, what I enjoy so much about coaching is watching the kids develop a new skill in practice and then apply it at a meet. It's really great to see that uh, growth. And you know what we want to get out of coaching is really for the kids to develop a love of the sport and continue with it. And ultimately, we want them to develop good, healthy habits where they enjoy moving and continue to do it um, because moving is a privilege and like any other privilege you have to take care of it so i uh, just really enjoy seeing them um, grow and um, hope that we're helping them build healthy habits that they'll keep their whole lives that soundbite was from one of our fantastic cross-country coaches out at gold river discovery center and it was done on september 8th at our positive coaching alliance workshop on coaching with empathy. And that's a workshop that carries over to Positive Coaching Alliance from the merger with Coaching Core. But a great trainer, one of my favorites, Mark Smidgen, and truly a mentor of mine who's worked with me on a lot of positive coaching stuff and workshops and how to do that properly. He's just fantastic and does a great job with our coaches. I got to participate and learn all these great things about coaching with empathy that our cross-country coaches learned about and that our wrestling coaches and our track and field coaches will get to do in the winter and in the spring. So when we talk about coaching with empathy, there are ways that coaches can model empathy to our athletes and to our parents and our community. And that's by seeing and hearing and listening to understand from an athlete's perspective. And then communicating that you understand or mirroring back to the athlete what you heard and saw using feeling words and that we appreciate that connection that we've made and that reflection that we've made with that athlete. What it looks like to the athlete is it shows concern for others and that it celebrates teammates who are successful. They articulate what others might be feeling correctly and they engage in active listening with eye contact, facing the person, asking questions and they seek out others who need their support or their encouragement. And there are ways that we can do that. Some of the tips that Positive Coaching Alliance gave us and, and Mark, who did the training, gave us were that we can remind athletes to show gratitude to officials and to other teams, right? By those handshakes, telling them doing a good job, thanking them for being there as part of their growth process. We can show care and concern when athletes get injured and encourage them to do the same even to the members of the opposite team, right? Show that we have concern and that we appreciate what they're going through in their own process and their own journey through athletics. Coaches can use the terms like be kind, understand what someone else is feeling and that they should take care of their team and their teammates. And we can also show empathy is not an end goal. It's a process and that we incorporate empathy into all facets of coaching. It's a part of what we do. 
um, in the sport and out of the sport, that we show concern for others. We understand what they're feeling and what they're going through, and we encourage them as they go through that process. So I want to thank Positive Coaching Alliance for a great workshop, as always, and our cross-country coaches who let me participate with them and be part of their discussion. It was an amazing night, and I look forward to seeing all that we've learned in action as we start our cross-country season. I am very excited about our interview that we have for this episode. This is uh, one of my my favorite authors and somebody's book that I recommend when I when I do trainings or I'm talking to coaches or I'm talking to parents involved in in youth sports and just a, a fantastic writer. Um, so we are welcoming the author of Take Back the Game, uh, Linda Flanagan. Linda, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, I'm I'm very excited. I. Um, one of the things I really love about your book, I love the way you take a story, um, a, a narrative of somebody's story, whether it's yours or your kids or athletes mm-hmm. you've worked with, and then you you kind of weave that into the research and the data that proves the point of that story. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I just think it's really, really well done and a way to pull people into what well, um, reality and what we know through research is instead yeah. of just trying to tell it anecdotally. Yeah. Um, All right. Linda is a freelance journalist, a researcher, and former cross-country and track coach. She is the founding board member of Positive Coaching Alliance um, and in 2020-21, advisory group member for Aspen Institute's Reimagining School Sports Initiative. Um, Her writing on sports has appeared in the Atlantic, Runner's World, on NPR's site MindShift, where she is a regular contributor. Previously, she was an analyst for the National Security Program at Harvard University. Linda is the mother of three, a lifelong runner, and lives in New Jersey. All right, Linda, you ready for your warm-up question? I am. I'll do my best. Okay. (laughs) That's all we can ask, right? Um, Who is your favorite hero of fiction? You know, it's, it, I bet my my instinct says somebody like Atticus Finch, you know, like here was this great hero from To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, but I have a different one now because that's too easy. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, I can't remember the character's name, but it doesn't really matter. It's a short book by Claire Keegan and it's called, um, I wish I had my, I would Google it quickly. It's not Foster. It's the book she wrote before Foster. And it is, it's about a man in Ireland who's very brave, who does something courageous for um, some women in his community um, who are, you know, kind of like the forgotten, it takes place, you know, decades ago in, in a community in Ireland where unwed mothers were kind of shunned away. And he, he does a very brave thing. It's one of the best most hopeful books. And it kills me that I can't remember the name of it, but Claire Keegan is the author. It's fantastic. That's awesome. That's great. Um, so youth sports have greatly changed since I was playing little league and pop Warner and high school sports. Like I don't remember any parents at our practices. It was like, we got dropped off and they hopefully picked us up when it was over with, um, yep. and, you know, the same four or five bats on the duffel bag, even at the high school level, that has yep. completely changed. So I'd love for you to talk about how 
youth sports have been impacted by money and scholarships and how that's really become big business. Yeah. Well, yeah, that was very enlightening for me when I started digging into this, how profitable youth sports are. And, uh, you know, basically, companies, individuals have figured out that there's a big appetite for kids sports and parents will pay up for it. And this started um, in the 70s, kind of as what I've read, that's sort of the beginning of when a lot of things turned, when there was a recession and uh, public funding for parks and programs that, you know, maybe you would have gone to and I would have gone to really declined. Um, Parks are often considered like discretionary and they're the first to get cut and the last to come back. In fact, after the financial crisis of 2008-2009, spending on parks, local revenue, local spending on parks was less than 2%. You know, when you consider all the local spending, there's a lot, but they're, they're just considered, they're not considered important. So in that void, um, people came forward to s- start offering um, private options or, you know, other non-public options uh, for kids' sports. And part of that was there's demand in part because Title IX as well had been passed. And in the 90s, when enforcement picked up, so a lot more girls going out for sports. Um, and again, private individuals stepped up to fill that void. What really changed things was uh, the building of the Wide World of Sports Complex, Disney, built in 1997, that, you know, this giant complex, and and Disney took a big gamble on this. They thought, we need to get the teenage population, because they are the ones who start losing interest in the Magic Kingdom. And (laughs) they, you know, they built this giant complex, and lo and behold, it it was very attractive. A lot of there were a lot of AAU championships held at the Disney Wild World Sports Complex. After 9-11, when there was a lot of decline in tourism and everyone was afraid, the Disney's the Wide World of Sports Complex did just fine. And this, you know, others took note of this, and you know, municipalities started realizing that if well, if they built a sport complex, if you build it, they will come. And there are now 10 times the number of sports complexes around the country, and there are some 30,000 of them. So it's just become a giant industry. And I, I'm reluctant to say a number. I, I In my book, I said 19 billion. And that research organization has since upped that number to 28 billion. Wow. I, you know, I, I think we have to view them with these numbers with a little skepticism, but I do believe the Aspen Institute came out and said that annually parents spend 30 to 40 billion dollars on their kids sports so it's big we all know that and you know that was um i think from the book uh, and being involved with sports for a long time i think that was the part that struck me the most that i wasn't aware of the the complexes and like cities building baseball complexes and soccer complexes and that becomes a money maker for the yes. city with people coming and staying in hotels and paying for the tournaments. And yes. that, that part really, I was, that was an eye opener for me, yeah. that part of it. Well, you don't think about it. You know, if you're just going to these things, you're not thinking about it from the point of view of those who are building it and what's their purpose here. And look, they, they recognize that parents are going to spend on this. Um, and it makes sense from their point of view that if you want to generate tax revenue, you know, even for the city, um, you know, it, it works a little bit kind of like gambling works, you know, right. it, it may not be in the public interest, but it works. 
right. And it, and that's a, this would be a whole nother conversation that concerns me a ton of the kids and parents that can't afford that. And yes. what's happening with, with that section of our society and their participation in sports. And, and a lot of times a group of kids that need it the most need that yes. belonging, the most need that activity, the most, um, yes. and like I said, that could be a whole nother big, long conversation on what happens, but that's a big concern to me for sure. Well, let me just add one statistic about that. In 2020, the CDC reported that in households earning $100,000 or more, 70% of kids played sports to some degree. I'm not saying it's a lot, but to some degree. And in households earning $25,000 or less, 31% of kids did. So it is very much a class-based division here. Right. And, and that's really... To me, as somebody involved with school sports, that's a huge argument for school sports, that we can Absolutely. provide something that those kids can't get somewhere else or can't afford to get somewhere else. So I it's a totally huge agree. argument for yep. keeping new sports going. Yeah. All right. Let's let's uh, let's move on to, to parents a little bit okay. here. Um, in second goal parent workshops that I do for Positive Coaching Alliance, um, we do a hundred point exercise where parents assign values to the goals they have for their children in youth sports. It's, it's interesting that we often see parents with this great intent of what they want their kids to get out of sports and what they'll put down on paper. Um, but then we kind of see what happens to those goals and how they change rapidly um, in the heat of a season or as a career moves along. Um, so what do you feel are some of the factors that bring parents from goals of life skills, like teamwork, grit, work ethic, et cetera, to what often becomes a very self-centered participation and a win-at-all-cost yeah. kind of ideal? Well, isn't that like, that's like the main question, right? I mean, why we intellectually realize that this game really doesn't matter. It's not important. Maybe their child is six or seven years old. Why do I care? And yet something visceral takes over. And I think part of this, the main reason, you know, the big overarching reason I think is that adults, and that includes coaches and parents, have forgotten what sports are for and who they're for that youth sports are actually for children and for their development, not to, you know, make me feel good about what a good job I'm doing as a mother or wearing my coaching hat. Wow, what a great coach I am. We just won. It's, we just kind of, that gets lost in the, um, the hype around youth sports and the seriousness, the professionalization, you know, part of that is the more you're paying, the more you want out of it. You know, it's those first things you mentioned on that hundred point, you know, values list that parents said, you know, they want you, do you want your kids to build character and teamwork and discipline, all these wonderful virtues. They're also very hard to measure, you know, so they're right. They're just amorphous. Whereas, look, there's the scoreboard. It is it's so clear. And I, I also felt this as a coach that um, we used to have at the end of the season, our um community would uh, or conference would have a coach of the year would you know for that it was actually coach of the season for that particular sport and it was invariably the winningest coach it had nothing to do with these other qualities because you can't really measure them or they're at least hard to assess in the short term so I think part of it is you know that it's the, the way we've forgotten what sports are for I think many sports parents are probably more competitive than your average you know run-of-the-mill parent because Maybe they were athletes themselves and want their kids to be. I mean, of course, so many kids play sports. Not all of those children have parents who played. But um, 
I, I think you could find that probably the most competitive kids are the most comp- very competitive parents. And, you know, we also can't forget that we live in a in a capitalist society where it's a winner take all society. That's kind of the way we're we run. You know, it's about who does things the best and it's up or out. And it's hard to separate that out from this nice little domain at the at the playground or at the field where there's the scoreboard and your child's, you know, ready to hit. You want that child to hit. And you care that that you know that they score and that your team wins and it's worth it and yay we're on the right path. Um, you know, there's also these you know, um, and I go into this in the book some, which I also find so interesting is like how our whole idea, our concepts of childhood have changed so much. You know, it's not just that like your parents and my parents they dropped us off and said have fun, you know, see you later, you hope you win or whatever sport you're playing. Um, right. Of course, they cared about us and they wanted us to do well, but it just wasn't a fixation. But what's changed also goes back to the 70s with the recession. A lot of factors beginning then, changes in family life that have made children, we've they've moved, to quote Jennifer Sr., from our employees to our bosses. I always say that because it is such an apt <laughs> phrase where they have become this kind of the centerpiece of family life. It's no longer the parents' activities or even the families as a whole. It's each child's individual activities. And that's a big a big change. Um, we have fewer kids now, so they're scarcer, so they're more precious. There's um, fear of stranger danger, which started also started like 70s, 80s, uh, when kids were abducted and very high profile cases. There's a lot of media attention on them, and you know now with technology, you can tr- you can surveil your child. There's this great sense of danger, and which is misplaced. I mean, yes. not that terrible things can't happen; they do, and they're awful when they do. But they're also it's it's they're also incredibly remote. But we we operate as if you know there's danger at every every turn, and so therefore put them have them in supervised play, put them in organized sports. And of course, we also know that athletes are celebrated figures in our society. I mean, that's an, it's so obvious that, you know, hardly is worth saying because um, everybody loves the the big sports star. And there, you know, I saw it read somewhere that 82 of the top 100 broadcast TV shows had to do with the NFL. Were, I mean, they're just hugely popular. So it stands to reason that if you have a athletic child and, uh, you know, it's there, you get some kind of um, ego gratification from them doing really well. So you want them to win. So it becomes about winning. It becomes about uh, their success reflecting back on you in a way, in a, to a greater degree. Obviously, parents always wanted their kids to succeed. It's just a matter of degree. And it's just become so distorted. So that winning and like doing well and publicly shining is has taken on, it's just dwarfed the other kind of lesser virtues of sports, which is really what they're all about. And again, right. we've forgotten what <laughs> sports are for and who they're for. Right. And, you know, I, and this comes from me listening, you know, listening to the book and you were talking about kids being compared on social media and that's the same for parents, right? Yes. They're, 
they're being compared on social media with like what kids game were they at? How did the kid do? Or you'll see a qu- question in the comment. Did they win? Yes. Not, like, did they have fun? Yes. Did they learn yes. something, you know, yes. stuff like that. And there's really changed and got us away from like, you're saying the, the, why are we doing this in the first place? Yes. And we're, we're doing this to try to keep, have kids be physically fit, get yes. some exercise, learn to be great teammates, learn how to work hard, you know, yeah. focus on process. So it, yes. I think all of that has changed greatly. And when we talk about scholarships, which you, you talk about a lot in the book, cause it's yeah. changed the way scholarships have changed, has changed um, how we view sports and the cost of college has changed yes. that yes. aspect too. What I try to tell parents is, okay, no one can tell you, you can't have that goal of your kid getting a scholarship, right? That that's a, that's a great thing to achieve, mm-hmm. but instead let's focus on the process of getting that scholarship. Cause mm-hmm. it's going to take some luck. First of all, the right person has to see you. You have to not get injured. Mm-hmm. A lot of things have to come together, but no matter what the end of that is, we still have learned grit and determination and, you know, getting up out of bed early in the morning to go for a run or whatever the case may be. We've learned those skills that will benefit us later in life, whether we get a scholarship or not. Yes. So if you focus on the process, those outcomes will come um, as naturally as they can. Right. And and the other, uh, you know, uh, essential truth is that you can't make your child good. They have to right. want it. <laughs> So, you know, all your parents obsessing about, well, I got, they got to get a scholarship. I've got to open doors for them so that they get a scholarship. It's incredibly unlikely, first of all. And it, and if it does happen, it's because the child wants it, really desperately wants it and is going to do any, everything it takes. And even then they might not get it. I mean, I, I it might be a good time to go over some numbers about like scholarships. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Okay, so six to seven percent of high school athletes play in college. High school athletes. Two percent of high school athletes get any money, any kind of scholarship money. Fifteen, and that's only in D1 and D2, mostly D1, which is the most competitive sport, uh, competitive um, division. Fifteen percent of D1 athletes get full rides, you know, this, you know, full ride, the whole, the whole shebang. And that's mostly in football and basketball. So the idea that your, um, you know, lacrosse playing son or daughter or soccer soccer player or soccer playing son or daughter is going to get money, enough scholarship money, athletic scholarship money to offset all you've spent is very unlikely. And which isn't to say they shouldn't play. It's about what are you trying to get from it? And, and this is what I've always found so troubling. It's like, we've forgotten that sports are for development and for like, as you said, like learning discipline and teamwork and having fun and and being active. And maybe it'll turn into something lucrative, financially remunerative down the road. But that, you know, having that like outcome orientation is not helpful or wise in any way, in my view, again, process, go through it, get, and it is their experience, which you cannot force. Right, right. And I can see things pretty quickly when you can see a kid being pushed, whether yes. it's does that kid want to be pushed. Um, mm. Do they not like being pushed? And those tend to be the kids that they don't fizzle out athletically. They fizzle out mentally. They yes. just they kind of break and, and yes. that takes them away from the sport. And then we lose all those benefits that we could have gotten 
by just letting it be their thing, you know, yes. cheer them on, be proud of them, but yep. let, let it be their thing, not a yes. whole group of people's things or, or parents thing, so to speak. Well, you know, um, I just read a study um, and I can't, I don't know when the study came out, so I can't be sure, but it's over a, more than a hundred kids. So it was not a huge study, but of the nine and nine, 10, 11 year old kids playing ice hockey. And the kids were surveyed and the parents were surveyed about how much pressure was being put on them. So the kids were asked how much their parents did and the parents asked how much they did. And you can imagine that the kids, it was like uniformly, the kids said, parents apply a lot of pressure and the parents are like, oh, I'm not doing much at all. So there's just this mismatch. And the kids who felt a lot of pressure did not enjoy the sport. They do not like it. And those are the kids who are going to leave the sport or they're going to rebel. You know, you can't force your child to love a sport. You just right. can't. <laughs> they have to come to it on their own. You can expose them to it, set them up so that they are welcome to participate and, you know, learn the skills that might allow them to love it. But you can't make them love it. Right. Because you know? sports are hard. <laughs> they are. You know, that's just a fact. Going to practice every day for a little bit, you compete. Um, it's hard. So you, your heart has to be in it if you're going to be successful and you're going to enjoy it. And, you know, at those same parent conferences, it ends with the slide that talks about the good old days. Mm -hmm. And I really emphasize, like, look, we had our good old days. And mm -hmm. that's why we remember them fondly, because they were good old days. Mm -hmm. So let's make sure that what we're doing allows the kids we're we're working with now for that to be their good old days that they mm -hmm. look back on it fondly and not as as this pressure experience and i didn't accomplish what i was supposed to because i didn't get a d1 full ride right right well you got to play college sports most people don't get to do that you know regardless yes. of whether you're getting money for it or not so yes just right really making sure that that's a positive experience for them yes absolutely um, one of the, the outcomes you talk about is this idea of sports building character and mm -hmm. and i've always felt like that's appear that well that depends right it depends yes. on the situation and um you say at the end of that chapter about building character to the extent that there's consensus on sports contribution to character then it appears to be this what kids glean from athletics depends entirely on a shifting entangled array of variables community values parental attitudes towards sports the coach's manner coaches manner and methods the child's own temperament and training and the countless other intangibles determine the kids what kids learn from athletics. Sports themselves are empty vessels imbued with meanings we attach to them. So what can you sports organizations do to make sure we're filling those vessels with those life lessons mm -hmm. and those mm -hmm. character values that we're hoping kids get out of sports? Yeah. Well, I think the first is to recognize that they are empty vessels, that you know, just by playing a sport doesn't mean you're going to suddenly be if you drop your kid off at a practice, it's not like they're going to come home with suddenly they're better to their brother or sister, you know, they're more <laughs> happy to, to empty the dishwasher. It doesn't work that way. Um, I think if, if organizations and parents understood that it's, it really is dependent on the context. It can be very, kids can pick up terrible things in sports. There's all kinds of bad things in sports. So first of all, understand that there's no inherent virtue in it. Um, I think also organizations, um, whether it's a, a league or a school team, you know, they should be really explicit, clear themselves and with the kids about what they're trying to teach. Uh, now, sometimes I, I've often felt that 
what you pick up from athletics. You don't necessarily understand it at the time. You kind of learn later. So even if somebody tells you, um, we're going to learn about discipline today, you don't necessarily, (laughs) the importance of being on time. It doesn't have, it's not until later that you really appreciate that. But I think if at least coaches are conscious of what they're trying to do, and if leagues are clear, like what this is what we want kids to learn. We want kids to learn that it's, you know, showing up on time matters, that being there for their teammates matters, that practice outside of uh, practice, you know, like self, you know, running around at home, unstructured practice matters too. If we want them to learn that, we need to be clear about that ourselves. And and to be clear about it with the kids. And, um, you know, I hesitate to like give, I don't mean to sound like an authority or, a, you know, the icon of coaching because I sure did plenty of things wrong and there are things I wish I had done differently. But toward the end of my coaching career, I, I started asking um, kids, and I, I really wish I had done this earlier, is what did you, we sat around in this little circle. I mean, I was cross country, so it was a small group, which is, easy. And I said, girls, I want you to think about what you've learned this season that could apply to the rest of your life. Like what, you know, what, and it was good because it was at the end of the season. I think a week had passed and it was so gratifying. And I also realized that sometimes they tell you what you want to hear. So I think you have to kind of set it up so that they could write it down. And they did. I had them write it down and some of them volunteered. And they said things like, um, we're stronger. I'm stronger than I think I am. Um, one said the importance of baby steps. I'm like, girls, this is exactly what you need to load. It worked here in cross country. It can work elsewhere. It, the baby steps are so important. Um, showing up, yeah, it, but they did learned it. And if, it, but if you don't draw their attention to it, it also won't necessarily translate to the classroom or anywhere else. Like, I think we tend to think it does, but it's not necessarily so. It doesn't doesn't hurt to like elevate it to have a discussion about it yeah i'm my my wrestlers i we journal every week and it's it's simple journaling process but i like them to to take some time to do that and and one of the questions every week is what is something you're grateful for or you're Mm -hmm. thankful for and i love when they write down things like my parents because they come and pick me up from practice or they get me to competition just those you know pointing out those little things like other people are helping you out and you have a lot of things in life to be thankful for, no matter what the immediate situation is, yeah. but you're right. You have to point it out to them. You have to get them to think about it a little bit. And that's where we get down to those, those life skills and those character traits that we're looking for, but it has to be purposeful. It yes. has to be something that you, you have a plan, just like you have a practice plan or the mm-hmm. technique you're going to teach. You better have a plan that you're going to get those, those other life skills across as well. And that's like you said, when we see that as coaches, it's one of the things we're grateful for, yes, right? We get to, right. to see them come back with, with the things that we were looking to do. Um, there's also, and if I could just add, I think that, for uh, sure. uh, you know, it's the coach hit your, you as a coach, you have to like embody what you're trying to teach. You can't like lecture kids about bullying and then be a complete jackass. You know, <laughs> you can't, tell them they have to be on time, bus leaves on time, and then you stroll in late. This is not, it's probably the most important thing a coach teaches, in my view, is what kind of person are they? What kind of person are you as a coach? If you're 
if you dismiss kids who aren't any good or you don't put any time in or you don't notice them, you don't know their names, you know, all the lessons about character and integrity will mean nothing. It's how you behave as a coach that makes such a difference. And we're all going to make mistakes, you know, but I think kids know if you really care about them, if you're doing it to you know, check a box or if you actually care about them as people and not just about, you know, their performance, that you care about them, you want to see them improve and do well, and that um, that's why you're doing it. Right. And, you know, I think when you, the, this idea too, when you do make mistakes, that you admit it to kids, you know, I blew it. Yes. <laughs> this is what I should have done. I didn't handle it that way. And that's teaching those life lessons as well. But you have to, they notice everything you do. You yes. are an authority figure to them, an expert in something. They yes. notice everything that you do and they will pick that up. Um, yes. So you have to be very, very attentive to the way you're handling yourself. Like I said, you can't be a hypocrite. No. <laughs> If you well, if you want them on time, you better walk through the door. You better be there when they get there. And you yes. better be ready to go. Yes. Well, and you know, I used to always tell my girls that sometimes when we would have um, we'd have like big meetings. You know, I'm sure you do this as well. After like a loss, a, a disappointment, something that didn't go the way we wanted it to, and I would always tell them, as as unhappy as I was, like, look, don't ever let a coach tell you, scream at you, and get mad at you for losing, because. If you're the coach, you're the one in charge of that team. So maybe you did something wrong. Maybe I didn't. Maybe we lost that meet because you died on the hills because I didn't prescribe enough hill training. Maybe I didn't do enough. I focused on the wrong thing in practice. Like kids should never bear the burden of a loss. The coach has a lot of responsibility. And and by the way, it's okay to lose. But the idea that it's all their fault. I, I really think it's important that kids know that that is just, that's baloney, you know, you bear. And exactly. I think coaches scream actually because they're embarrassed, but. You know. Right. And, and I think they want people that are watching. They, they think the screaming means that they, they care and they're doing yes. the best they can. You know, it's, it's, and I did plenty of not screaming to kids necessarily, but plenty of my own yelling and screaming when I was a young coach. And I know yeah. like, especially with officials and I had that feeling like, I need to show that I care about my kids. I need to defend my kids. And I yeah. was teaching them something horrible by doing yeah. that. You know, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm telling them to treat people with respect. And here I am yelling at some poor guy that's making $30 for you yeah. know, a, a match. I know, so. <laughs> but that's the expect. that's the norm. So you feel like, oh, I guess I better do this. And those, some of those norms really have to change. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, when we finished our season last year, we have a district championship and we're really competitive with the school. It's, like right down the street from us, our campuses literally look exactly the same. Just oh. like ours runs uphill and theirs runs downhill, but they look the same. All the kids are friends, coaches are friends. Um, and they won the district championship and we came in second. And my kids were really upset. You know, they're they're in tears. They're sitting in the stands really upset. And I said, I'm really proud of you. You you went, did anybody here not do the best they could today? Mm -hmm. You know, and then they're kind of looking at me and it's like, you, you gave you gave us everything you had as a good teammate. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go over there and shake their hands and congratulate them. Mm -hmm. And it was like the best moment of the season. And it was just off the cuff for me because I could see they were hurting mm -hmm. and it made a huge difference for them. And then for the other team as well, that we're going to respect opponents, honor yes. what they they brought out in us that day to try yeah. to, to try to beat them. Um, but just showing those kinds of things and showing kids it's okay. You yes. know, you, 
You came yes. in second. You worked yes. your tail off all year long, you know. <laughs> um, I, I got. I wrote this down on my notes this morning as as um, I was getting ready for school. I was listening to um, the part where you're talking about Ali Carter, mm-hmm. and it's it's. I've listened to it a few times, and every time I listen to it, it, it chokes me up. Mm-hmm. Just what she went through mm-hmm. in a season, and what her teammates did for her mm-hmm. and that part of sports that's way beyond yes a stopwatch and a place and yeah. just that she had that support from a team um yeah. and it's just yeah. one of those stories I, I was saying that you, you tell and you weave into the book that are they just suck you right into what sports is supposed to be about yeah. and and yeah. some of them when we do it wrong the damage that it can do but I just I just wanted to share with you that I, I really appreciated oh, that you. story and what oh. happened with that. Thank you. She's doing great, by the way. Good. No. Yeah, well, if you talk to her, tell her I'm a big fan. I will. Of what I her will. story was. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> Linda, I, I really appreciate you coming on. This was, um, I've been talking about this for weeks with people at school and, and at our, I sat in on the cross country uh, workshop for PCA last week and oh. um, I was just really excited. And I can't recommend your book enough to people when I'm out at workshops. It's it's Joe Ehrman's Inside Out Coaching and and Take Back the Game or the books <laughs> that I recommend. So you're living in high company there. I don't know. If uh, well, my company you. is not super high, but I, the books I recommend are thank very you. good ones. And, and yours is definitely one of those. So I really appreciate you coming on. Um, my and, pleasure. You know, we could talk for hours and hours. I'm but, sure um, we could. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you very much. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. It. Thank you for having me. A big thank you to the author of Take Back the Game, Linda Flanagan, for joining us on this episode. I'm a huge fan. Her book is a must read for anyone involved with youth sports. So I was very excited to have her on. It was truly an honor to get to talk to her. So again, a big thank you to Linda. This month's shout out goes to Jennifer Page Rogers, a former Carnegie and Bella Vista wrestler. In September, Jennifer earned the opportunity to go to Serbia and wrestle for the United States wrestling team at the world championships. She beat the number one seed from Japan at the championships and came home with a bronze medal. Just an outstanding job. Jennifer is a great wrestler, obviously, but she's even a better person. And her perseverance in her career brought her to this moment where she she got that well-deserved honor of being a bronze medalist at the world championships. You can hear Jennifer's story in our February episode from the past school year. She was on with us, and I really recommend you hearing what what she's gone through and what she's been able to do leading up to that bronze medal in Serbia. Our cross-country season has begun, so make sure you get out there and cheer on our athletes from our middle schools and K-8s who are participating in cross-country. The Positive Sports Report is supported by the Performance Connection. Unlock the full potential of your youth and high school sports organization with positive coaching and mental preparation. Learn how to build an organization based on core values, how to stay focused, positive, and motivated with help from the Performance Connection. See the services available from the Performance Connection at theperformanceconnection.com. Please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast server and now on YouTube as well. Follow us on Instagram at the Positive Sports Report. Until next time, let's keep our sports positive.